Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hey, everyone. I just want to make mention still that there's so much happening in the world that I don't want to overlook. So much that's happening now in Ukraine and parts around it. Of course, there are many things happening all over the world. But I know what's happening in that part of the world is very worrisome and is on our minds. And so do what you can to send relief, to send donations to reputable organizations, to help the people, refugees, and to help the animals also that are displaced and are needing supplies for themselves, to help the the doctors, nurses, other caregivers in any way you can, and give to an organization that you've researched to know that they, again, are legit. And uh, when I did Ancestry and found out that my grandfather, who I only knew for a couple of years before he passed, was actually born in Ukraine. That was very powerful to find out. And uh, I got reminded about that when I checked Ancestry because I remembered hearing about the name of his town and hearing it actually being talked about on the news. And he was able to be rescued through a refugee organization and brought to America. So those organizations do help and they're, they're absolutely needed right now. wanted to make sure to read something to you that was written by Jamie DeWolf, a friend of the show, a former guest, someone who I'm in contact with here and there who I have great respect for and I have had some of my most fun conversations with. He is the great-grandson of L. Ron Hubbard and this week marked what would have been L. Ron Hubbard's 111th birthday. And so with giving Jamie DeWolf full credit, knowing also that this was written publicly, so I'm not sharing anything private, he writes, Happy 111th birthday to my great-granddad, L. Ron Hubbard. He's somewhere out in space, marshalling forces against the Galactic Federation. For a man who once wrote that he wanted to smash his name in history. Elrond's legacy continues to be an open wound in the psyche of the last half century. His victims still walk the streets from Clearwater to Moscow. His words are still hammered into the minds of the young. Though he died decades ago in isolation, except for his ghosts that even an e-meter couldn't exorcise, in the end, Elrond could never escape himself. Maybe he looked in the mirror on that ranch and saw a victory looking back, an old man who never saw a day of jail for all his crimes, a man who achieved his dreams of dying rich with an army of shadow puppets carrying on his charade of a life, eternal soldiers saluting to statues of the hero that never was. He lived a life with more plot twists than his novels. A military man who went to war with the world and wrote a new past for himself. A student of black magic who would encode his theology into a labyrinth of vampiric control. He wrote a biography of what he wanted to be and trained others to repeat it until he could tell tall tales long after his body was turned to ash. 
He was my first childhood hero growing up. I had volumes of his work in my bookshelf as I typed away at my own stories. He was smiling in the back covers and I'd write him letters hoping one day he'd read my words. I'd go to bookstores with his daughter and with his son, never knowing he was already in hiding. I didn't know what else was hidden then, the secrets my family kept behind silence. People often ask me if I have love for my great-grandfather, if I admire him in any way. Sure I do. I admire his audacity, his brilliance. I admire his guts. I find him as entertaining as the dozens of storytellers, comedians, and poets that I've toured with. I play his recordings, and we laugh. But his hunger for control and cash at the sake of someone else's sanity is difficult to forgive. The damage he did with his time on the planet still echoes until today. I'm related to three L. Ron Hubbards, all men who took that name and went another way. I've spent my life adamantly trying to be everything he's not. He sold people lies. I try to tell ugly truths. He manipulated millions. And I teach writing to youth and tell them to never forget the power of their own voice. My family hasn't fully told our story yet. I hope we won't die with our secrets. But we're living evidence he wasn't the man he said he was. If he's out there watching, his malevolent narcissism would be warming his hands over all of us talking about him again. But let's tell his true story, the one he wouldn't tell the world. And so for today, I am so happy that you're going to be able to hear part two of my conversation with Rachel Nelson. Shelley Swires, Melissa Longfellow. They were all teachers and leaders for many years in the Baptiste Yoga Organization, a high-control yoga system led by Baron Baptiste that claims to be changing the world through its quote-unquote methodology. During that time, they dedicated their careers and much of their personal lives to the group and to the leader, believing that what they were doing was healing the planet. After each having their pivotal moment at different times, they reconnected to process their experience together and discovered what felt indescribably off. Well, finding out, actually, that that was because they had been subject to many cult indoctrination techniques. They subsequently started a podcast to share their experiences and educate people about the dangers in Baptiste yoga, the thought control the manipulation, coercion, and having a charismatic leader. Each of them is now focused on taking back their own life and enjoying life exactly as they choose to live it. Here is part two of my two-part conversation with these wonderful, strong women. Okay, Melissa, go for it. I think I want to say there'll be all kinds of listeners who have had experience with Baptiste yoga. And I think, you know, there's a lot of people who are had had great experiences with Baptiste yoga. Like I had when I first started, like Shelly did, and we all did, right. We all had a, a positive experience. So there's that tier and, and then they might not know anything about any of this, you know, mm -hmm. and then there's, another tier of people, like people that then I trained, 
you know, in my teacher trainings and I expose them to Baptiste yoga and they might have gotten just because I was programmed to treat like, let's say not at the student level, but at the teacher level, you have your trainees like that I trained and then I'm like subjecting them to this crap, you know, that I learned to be subjected to. And so they had this experience, but then there are going to be some people listening who have never been exposed to what we've been exposed to. Mm -hmm. And then there's even more layers of people who've been exposed to stuff that I've never been exposed to. I think it's as it goes closer Mm. to the center, the center being barren, the more like sinister it gets. And there's some people who will say my experience was perfectly fine. And that's true. Right. right. And that's okay. And yes. And there are going to be other people who are probably going to come forward and say, okay, yes, I had these experiences and this also happened. Right. Right. So it's all over the board. And which just means that there, there aren't safeguards in place because you can have a good experience and a bad experience in the same place. And that shouldn't be possible. Well, so my experience with Baptiste Yoga, like I was saying before, was, you know, I walked into this studio and it's like, I've never seen this happen before. We're packed in, we're sweating, we're blissed out. We're like, uh, this is, I don't know what just happened to me, mm-hmm. but I need more of this in my life. And Baron, I remember he talked very little in those days. I, he didn't really say that much. Like if you didn't know basic yoga, like you weren't really learning anything. He was just mm-hmm. like calling poses and we were all just going and going and going and going. It was like relentless. It was like 90 to a hundred minutes each class. And, wow. But I do remember him saying, you know, if you want to feel better, you come like two or three days a week. If you want, you know, some mm-hmm. significant changes come four to five days a week. If you want your life to change, mm-hmm. come six to seven days a week. And right there mm-hmm. is like, I want my life to change. Like mm-hmm. my life actually kind of sucks right now, now that you mention it. So I did. And I started coming seven days a week. I never missed a day. I had a complete transformation, like where I was like mm-hmm. a, like a pudgy, like overweight person, not very like confident in the way I looked. I like became like strong and spelt and like I stood up tall and I felt like men were noticing me and I felt like I was invisible before. And, and I was like, Oh my God, I just got my life. Like the secret to my life has been revealed, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that part is positive. You know, I really did get a lot out of it and I think that's okay. Like it's, it's totally okay to, to, and some people don't like this, but to admit that like, I got some positive stuff in this, in this experience. But it's like, again, when you start going into the closer levels, um, mm-hmm. so my first experience then uh, I'm from Boston and then I moved to Seattle and I went to, I sought out the same kind of yoga and I found this studio in Seattle and I took a, a program, like, first of all, the word program is kind of ironic, right? Like I'm going to program you. <laughs> um, That's true. So I took this program at a, at a Baptiste studio and I remember it was very rigorous. Like we were doing a lot of learning about how to be a hand, like how to do hands-on assists. That's a whole nother subject and not consensual touch, but we'll get there. But how to do assists. And we had a break, like a five minute break or something to go to the bathroom. And I got back like a minute late. And I remember the male co-owner of the studio, you guys know what I'm talking about, but, um, like gave me such a hard time. Like you're late and like closed the door on me. Like wouldn't let me back in the room. 
And I'm like, I, yeah, I'm a minute late, but it hasn't started. Like, what are you talking about? Like really humiliated me, like berated me. Like, I can't remember what, um, but it was, there's some punishment about it. Like, you're gonna have to talk to me after about it or something like that. And I remember feeling so like, oh my God, I am the worst person. But that was like the first exposure to what I now know is like that culture. Mm-hmm. And then when I got to, by the time I got to level one, it was a good 10 years after I had first met Baron, you know, and I practiced in that studio every day with him. And so by 10 years later, he was like an idol to me, you know, I, he had a book and I had never like actually talked to him because I was so intimidated by him. And then to go to a training, I was like, oh my God, I get to spend a week like training, like I'm going to learn how he does his magic and everything. I was already like drank the Kool-Aid and that's what everybody says inside the trainings. Like, are you going to drink the Kool-Aid? Haha. <laughs> because it's very like you come in really kind of knowing on some level that you're taking on these kind of weird things, beliefs. I don't know. Like, it's like, it never fails. And then when I became an assistant, I remember everybody, it never fails. Every group, people are like, are you going to drink the Kool-Aid? Are you going to drink the Kool-Aid? We're taught to joke about that. Like to joke about how culty yeah. it is so that we don't ever talk about the red flag, right? We're right. talking about, oh, we joke a little bit about it's culty. And Baron jokes about it. Baron he does, doesn't he? does joke about He's, it. I remember so many times when he, sometime during any program, he makes a few jokes about it, like whether it's during an asana practice or another time, like this is a good kind of brainwashing, you know, like towards the end, like, oh yeah, you guys, you've definitely drank the Kool-Aid. You smell better now. Like, oh yeah. From all the yoga and all the stuff, like he will make, he has always made every program jokes like that. And he's oh, mocking he us, right? Because like concerns we actually have, it's like, oh, it's something to joke about. And that's where the I think the whole thing comes from for all of us, where it's like, well, there's some bad, but there's more good. Even as the three of us have come out and started speaking, that's what you hear from so many people who won't say anything or who are still involved. It's like, yeah, there's some bad, but there's so much good. Right. I think some of that is also a desensitization so yeah. that after yes. a while, if things are joked about, then they lose the weight that they should have. And the alarm bells that they should be setting off. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. So the level one, you know, it was very like intense, like Shelly said, like really, really intense, especially back in those days, you know, there's like this kind of knowing that back in the days, Baron was super tough and he was like mean, like mean, mean. And he's softened over the years, but he's still indoctrinating people, but not as like outwardly. He got more covert about it. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Where he was outwardly humiliating, like ripping people to shreds, like without holding back at all and would keep them in the hot seat for a long, long time. And then he would have us do these long practice sessions, like literally three and a half, four hour intense yoga sessions, and then do it again, again, that same day. It was super, super intense. And then the the kind of words he would use were like, you know, you're either an example or you're a warning or, you know, there's some other phrases you guys pipe in if you remember, but get um, committed or get committed. 
Uh, suffering is optional, but somebody, his story is that a woman came to a training and she thought all week that the, the phrase was suffering is optimal. And so all week she was like, yeah, suffering is optimal. And then he joked about that. No, it's optional. And then if you can, you must, which like now I know that's a Tony Robbins ism, but he would say that like in the middle of these intense sessions, like if you can, you must like another one, another wheel, another, you know, if you can, you must kind of thing really like overtly kind of breaking us physically. And then um, there's the noble silence thing where he like send us to bed at two in the morning. This was back in the day. It's a little lighter now, but still the same. Send us in noble silence. In other words, you can't talk to your roommates and come back at seven in the morning for a meditation. So at the end of this, this week for me, there, I befriended one of my roommates. And afterwards, I remember having these conversations on the phone with her. And we would talk about like, what do you think about that guy? And like, we didn't, he didn't even teach any philosophy. Like there was no anatomy. Like we didn't even learn any yoga. Like, what do you think? I don't know. And we were kind of trying to figure it out you know, knowing that, ah, well, something, but I don't know. And, and then she ended up going to Africa and assisting a program that he gave in Africa. And she said Mm. to me, like, you know, she made this woman's headache disappear. What do you mean? You know? And so, but then I learned later, this is kind of one of his favorite things to do is like, where is the headache? What's the shape of it? Like he'd have somebody on in the hot seat. What mm-hmm. color is it? What da, da, da. And then it's like, it's gone. Like my headache's gone, you know? So there's like this sense of magic. Like he has some kind right. of magic powers or something. And, and then eventually this friend and I, we both signed up for level two. And level two is, well, in our day, it was a little bit different. It's still kind of a, well, the magic carpet ride is the culmination. And it's the magic carpet is when you are supposed to teach some kind of segment of yoga in front of the whole group. So one person at a time. And in our day, it was 60 something people. Now it's like 150 people. One person at a time goes in and teaches a group. And then everybody is told to start giving feedback, like just shouting things louder and louder. So you're essentially being yelled at at the top of people's lungs nothing is audible Mm -hmm. so there's like no feedback to put in and you can't at that point you can't do anything you can't teach anything you're not heard you're just being yelled at in the middle of this thing until an arbitrary moment when he decides like okay you're done some people it was like they're expression of themselves wasn't big enough you know and I'm like holding my arms out right now to say like like bigger expression and so like what you learned about that is like there's no room there for people who don't have that kind of expression who have maybe like a softer way of relating or communicating you had to be bigger bigger louder more expressive more bold more more, more, more. Your fullest self-expression is another favorite Baptiste phrase. Take the lid off is another favorite <laughs> expression of bearing. Like take the lid off, like let it out, take the mm-hmm. lid off, you know? Like, what is that called? Like, this is something I saw a lot. I experienced a lot of trauma with. What is it called when they're putting us in the middle of a room of so many people and they're screaming at us? What is he doing to us? 
I think, you know, there are a lot of different terms for it, but yes, it is abusive. And you also feel trapped. Going back to this idea of being trauma bonded, it's a way to have people feel very connected to each other because you've been through something together. And so a lot of people like after Landmark and other things will think the, even after the first workshop, these are now my best friends. Yeah. And because you, you shared what you want to have written on your tombstone, like you haven't even like taken your purse off your shoulder. <laughs> okay. Hello. And so it's a forced closeness and a trauma bond. And then you also get kind of Stockholm syndrome also, because someone has put you like has imprisoned you. And then you feel that they're benevolent for giving you praise or for saying you're done or for releasing you. So it sets up a situation where someone is absolutely in charge of you. And then you will do what you need to do to please them, no matter how uncomfortable it is. They will really enjoy that. And you'll feel like you reached some sort of plateau and think that that's where you were supposed to go in order to get stronger and healthier. There was another exercise that I really wanted to bring up, the be with exercise. The be with exercise is like, there's, it's always like at the end of the night, late at night, like after dinner, mm-hmm. long day, maybe day, what day, Rachel, you know. Breakthrough day. So yeah, so day, day three, three. it's usually yeah. on day three. And if you're on staff, like, you know, that we call day three breakthrough day and everybody expects people to break down and then break through on day three. And essentially it's when they like drink the Kool-Aid. They, yeah, their defenses are down and they just accept it all. But the be with exercise is like, it's all done in silence. It's very choreographed. It's very controlled. We'll talk about like our controlling the whole thing. When you're on staff, you control like every minutia, but it's very controlled. And a row of people stand at the front of the room facing out. And then one by one rows of seats are called to stand person face to face in front of each person that's standing at the front and toe to toe. So when you're toe to toe, there's like one inch between your nose and the other person's nose. You're told by Baron to be with them. You're not told what that means. It's like be with them, like be. And then he'll walk pace close to your faces, staring into people's eyes and make sure they're being with the other person. Be with them, be, you know, be with them. Whatever it comes up, let it come up, let it, every emotion, let it come up, be with them. What do you feel? You know, like all this kind of existential kind of talk. And eventually people start crying and then people start laughing and then crying and laughing in a combination of tears. And the thing goes on for a couple of hours where this, okay, next group face this way, next group go up. And then at the end, it culminates with, okay, anybody who doesn't feel complete with this exercise, and you're not told, told what that means, go back up to the front. And now who would like to be with these people? And then people start going up and crying again and crying. And then at the end, it's there's no completion. You're just told to go home and go to bed. You know, something else, I'm just going back to Shelly's question about what is this called? Some of it is also social contagion, which is that, you know, when people start to laugh, other people start to laugh. And when people cry, other people cry. When people scream out, other people scream out. And because you you feel like those people are getting it, especially if they get positive reinforcement for behaving that way, then other people start to do it too. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you were going to cry on your own or laugh on your own or yell or whatever. But 
we are social beings. So it's like, you know, someone yawns and then we yawn. And so we pick up on certain things from each other, which is sort of evolutionarily part of our survival. But sometimes people think they're having authentic experiences, but it's just a social Mm -hmm. contagion moment. The other thing, also this idea of being with, when you have something so amorphous and invisible and it, it can't be actually measured, then it causes dependency on the instructor to tell you when you have reached that and that you've done it right. Cause you have no idea. Cause you don't know what that looks like and what that means or what it feels like. Yeah. And so it sets up this, like you're a puppy and you're waiting to get approval if you've done it right. And you're not sure because you still are not quite sure what he's talking about. Okay. So go ahead and just as you're finishing up your story and then we'll go to Rachel. So there's also an expression about like having a breakthrough is like considered like a pop, you know, and you watch people maybe at the front of the room and Baron coaches them for a while. And then they have, you know, then they get to like, oh, did you feel this as a child? And what does that mean? And whatever coaching he was giving, like he's drawn from Landmark, he's drawn from Tony Robbins. And when the whole Nexium thing came into the public and, and They talked about these explorations of meaning, the EMs. Mm -hmm. That was the one thing that actually made my mind flip and go, wait a second. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That Mm -hmm. is like so familiar. Like that whole process, I was like, wait, wait, what? That was like very familiar and am I in a cult? So interesting. That was the thing um, that I recognized, but it left you feeling like if you didn't have this like big breakthrough that you hadn't really gotten it. He's very deliberate about telling people that like your level one might not work on you today. It might be like next week or six months from now or 10 years from now, your level one just keeps working on you, you know? And it was like, Oh, okay. Well, so it didn't work. I'm glad I paid $3,000, but it's going to keep working on me. So it's worth it. You know? And I definitely, took that and Mm -hmm. I accepted Mm -hmm. that explanation you know the other thing I want to say about just notice that none of us have talked about any yoga poses (laughs) because it was literally not I remember oh that's one of the things that we were talking about when we got home from level one like did you learn anything like no like we literally did not learn a thing we were taught to look in his book. We were giving a manual that was basically pages that are duplicated information from his book and no yoga was taught or how to teach it. We were put in like a picture, a gymnasium size room. And then in groups of four people or four or five people, it was like, um, okay, person one, it's your turn to teach. And you have 30 seconds to teach Mm -hmm. as much of this Mm -hmm. as you can go and then you have to be as loud as you can because you're in a gymnasium full of people who are all trying to be heard also so it was really useless exercises like completely useless and then we were taught to give and receive feedback which i now realize was also meant to desensitize us to getting berated mm-hmm. because if you weren't good at receiving feedback then you couldn't be a good baptiste teacher we were given like, this is how you give feedback. This is how you receive feedback. And then mm-hmm. if you weren't giving it right or receiving it right, you would be coached on that. 
giving feedback is a totally subjective experience, but we were told how to do it. Right. And so I'm just going back to the word inauthentic. I mean, it's so interesting. It's so inauthentic. And the Um, feedback wasn't like, oh, you know, warrior one is actually like externally rotating your arms. It wasn't anything to do with yoga. It was just like, yeah, you're just not you. Like you're just, there's just no like authenticity or stuff. Like the feedback was just arbitrary. Like stop being so concerned. Start being more genuine. You're not who I was talking to at lunch. That person, I want you to bring more of that real Shelly and stop being a, you know, cookie cutter yoga teacher. So we didn't Mm -hmm. learn, literally did not learn anything. So for any of us who became yoga teachers, we all had to learn Mm -hmm. elsewhere, Mm -hmm. like actual yoga. I mean, I kind of see like my Baptiste life in two segments. Like there's the old segment and which I just covered. And then the newer segment is when I started to become involved, like when I got closer to the source and we all took this, <laughs> we all did this training program called fit to lead, which is first called facilitator in training, uh, which there, there's only 25 of us that we're going to spend two years with Baron, a series of weekends over two years with the intention to be what it says, a facilitator in training facilitator, meaning like we're going to facilitate these trainings, these small weekend or day long that are occur around the state country, around the world. Um, and we're like the next generation of Baptist yoga leaders and teachers. And then, then it morphs after mm-hmm. we sign on the line that $10,000 I'm in for $10,000 for this training not including my travel or any anything mm-hmm. that I have to pay for to get there. $10,000 and then it gets switched. Oh, it's not called uh, faculty and training anymore. Now it's okay. just called fit. And then now it's called fit to lead. And then, you know, is the classic kind of bait and switch. Like, oh, it's actually, there's no guarantee, but it will make you a leader in whatever thing you want to do in your life, whatever you want to do in your life. There's that segment. And I, I feel like we could get into that more later, but um than being at the impact of what it's like to then be uh, leading programs and and be a little bit more privy to what's actually happening. Right. Okay. So thank you for that. And Rachel, go for it. I was actually introduced to Baptiste Yoga through a studio that had just unaffiliated. They were probably around in the beginning at Core Power Yoga, which mm-hmm. if you're a yogi, you know. They were actually an original Baptiste studio, uh, affiliate studio with their solo studio in Denver. And I did my first teacher training there and they had just unaffiliated, which is a whole other story. I came to their training and they still were using Barron's book. They had changed to their own sequence at that point already, but we were required to read Barron's book. And that was how I was first really introduced to Baptiste yoga and that was in Denver. And I moved back up to the mountain town where I was, where I'm from. And a woman had opened a small studio. She had done the core power training right before me, offered me a spot to teach. I was just finishing up a professional athletic career as well. So I was kind of in this in between. She went to a level one and came back and was like, you have to go, you know, like Mm -hmm. that. It changed my life. That recruitment started. Um, I just also want to point out that the studios are used as recruitment tools. 
Mm-hmm. Um, same with teachers. Nobody gets commissioned for any kind of recruitment that they do either, which is a fascinating thing to point out. The studios and certified teachers are basically used as recruitment tools. I have to say, Rach, commission yeah. is given out via favoritism, via being yeah. treated well versus being treated horribly. So she, the studio owner, you know, I was like, okay, let's, I'll go. And um, in between that time of when she came back and I ended up going, I went to a yoga journal conference in Estes Park and took some classes with him and took classes with many other teachers. Also, I was an athlete. I really liked the athletic practice. I liked mm-hmm. the heat, um, took a class and I remember talking to him afterwards and then I was like, yeah, I think I'll sign up. Like, and my first impression was kind of like, huh, okay. Like I like that. This is, feels good. Like I'm an athlete. I can do this. Like, I want to go see what this is all about. He seems okay. <laughs> like that was kind of my impression. Mm-hmm. I go to level one and, um, this was a, you know, as, as we say within the community, a back in the day level one, 6 a.m. walks. I went to Mexico, 6 a.m. walks on the beach with 2 a.m. finishes. If wow. you didn't show up to the 6 a.m. walk, you would get a knock on the door of, by an assistant. They were counting heads, figuring out who wasn't there. You were woken up. Come on, you got to go walk. That continues to be like the, where is everybody and why aren't you in the room was all, was that continued as Melissa mentioned, things kind of quote unquote softened, in my opinion, got more covert. We didn't have as late nights and as early mornings and later on down the road, more information was given around like the days and the schedules. Um, not necessarily before program, but during program. But so I started at that level one and I remember not, not being sure if I wanted to continue on after that, but being like, that was cool. Cause I had done some other trainings before with other teachers. And so I was exposed to a lot of different other kinds of yoga because I'd done other training. So I still was like, I don't know. And then a friend of mine who I had met at another training who was an assist now an assistant for Baron messaged me and was like, Hey, are you coming to this level two in Montana? And I was like, no. And she's like, I'm going to get you on the wait list. And she got me on the, she's like, do you want to? And I was like, sure. And she's like, I'm going to put you on the top of the wait list, which is also weird. Right. When I think about it now, I'm like, huh. She's mm-hmm. like, I'm going to call Baron. And she got me on the front of the waitlist, and I got in. And like two weeks later, I was heading to Montana for level two. So that was after level two. Level two is what really set me in the trajectory, um, staying in. I still continued to study with many different people and I and in some other specific styles. And when I look back, I know why. That's one of the reasons Baron kept me around and one of the reasons he liked me because he could use me to write content from these other styles and pull from these other things. So from that level two, I just, I kept, I wanted to assist. I, I started assisting. I was like, you know, I just made my way 
up mm-hmm. into the ranks. And the other reason I think I was primed is when I had started at my level one, I was not only coming off of a professional athletic career, um, I was coming off the death of my best friend. As you know, Rachel, and anyone listening that is any sense of high control groups mm-hmm. and things like that, those are good people to, to get in. They're vulnerable. Yes. They're confused. They don't, they're looking for something because life is shattered. Right. Um, and right. I was that. And I was also, I think another reason I did so well within the Institute and the company is having a professional athletic career. Mm-hmm. I was used to getting feedback and coaching and someone saying, do this thing. Mm-hmm. And me being like, okay, I'll go do that. Like, thank you. That will help me. So I was really good at that. Like I could take the feedback, I could take the coaching and I was really good at implementing it. In fact, Barron's one of his favorite things is be coachable. It's so interesting because it makes me wonder if he also is coachable. Uh, He's not. Right. I'll just be very honest. Okay. Right. Because usually these are people who will tell you what the ideal is, but they couldn't handle it themselves. I would watch him bring in many people to mm-hmm. consult with the Institute, to try and get it bigger, to get him more famous, to mm-hmm. create it so that there's some sort of maybe legacy or really hone the content and stuff like that. And they would, you know, these people who were high level, some high level leaders from Landmark, Baron would hire them to come in and give him feedback and help and he couldn't take it and they would be fired. He cannot take feedback from anybody whatsoever. But you, I mean, you set up some really interesting points here, just in terms of Mm -hmm. vulnerability, what you were looking for. And I'm sorry about the loss of your friend that, yeah, you're going to be looking for something. First of all, that's a good distraction to really throw yourself into and something also that can give you a sense of things making sense. Like, okay, I'm going to throw myself into something that might be good and predictable where I'll have a sense of achievement and, you know. It really fit for me. It's so interesting to look back on now. I made my way up and I was, you know, at the point where I was not, I was co-leading certain programs for him. I remember at a level three, I feel like I wrote a majority of the content for that program and led most of it. He just had disappeared. There were times where he was not we were, everyone was in the room waiting for him to come. He was not there. I just started doing it because he was not there. I was on my own. I was like, all right. Okay. Everybody child pose. <laughs> practice. I led all the practice teaching sessions and would create all the content from what I was taught and learned mm-hmm. from him. Mm-hmm. But also, as I mentioned, he really liked having me around because I still continued to study with other teachers and, and other styles. There's other people that were in and out of the community too, that he had create things that, and they were from other various styles. And then he would, you know, take the content on as his own. I made my way up and my final straw was in 2015. I, I, my first son was stillborn and I was so, I mean, indoctrinated that a month later, I went, I was like, no, I need to go to the fit to lead program. I need to be there. That's what a leader would do. Is they would just show up anyway, no matter what. Baron tells the story of how 
he was leading a program. He got a call that his dad died and he hung up the phone and went in and taught the best class of his life. I was so indoctrinated that I showed up there and I kept, you know, I then was offered a role within the company because I had sold my studio and I was like, okay, yeah, like this is what I have to do while I'm grappling with this major, major loss and grief. And my last straw was at a level three program in New York. It hadn't even been a full, it was the end of that year. So it was approaching like, you know, a few months away from the year anniversary of my son's birth and death. And I was not only like dealing with a cold, I was still dealing with that grief. And so I wasn't showing up as myself. And throughout that year, I remember hearing from certain other, um, like his CEO and some other high-level leaders, like, when are we going to get Rachel back? I just wish she'd, we'd come back already. So at this program, I was just having a hard time. And I wasn't taking the coaching or the feedback in the way he wanted. And I was getting burned in front of the entire group for teaching sake. To teach the group is what he would tell me. And then going back to after in between sessions and sitting at a table and him and the CEO yell, like yelling, berating me. And I, I just remember being like, what am I doing here? This is not okay. I cannot do this anymore. Right. And that was the last program I did. And I stayed on in the role I had within the company and some other stuff happened. And there were so many other things. It's like a memoir could be written. <laughs> and I was just like, I can't, this is not the right place anymore. There's, this is too wrong. And not the place I should. And I, by then I had had my, my now son that always, I think is a big game changer for people when you get a break from something like this. Cause I mean, mm-hmm. my life, our lives as Melissa and Shelly can attest to, if you were in any capacity working for the company, the amount of phone calls you have, you know, during the week, and then you need to be at these program amount, these amount of programs every year. So it's at least once a month you're going to something. You're either leading it or you have to be at something, or you need to be on like this, you need to be on these three calls this week. So you're not given any space. So once I got the space, it was like, oh, is this what life's supposed to feel like? Wow. Yeah. It's it's reminding me actually of this. Uh, episode. Well, I think there were three episodes. This probably will be three episodes too. Uh, these women who lost a, a daughter and within a number of hours were told they had to be at the meeting for their group. It was like this rogue 12 step group run by this very abusive person. And they were given a really hard time for missing the meeting that morning where they just, they just lost their child right then. And the same thing that you're talking about, they were able to leave when one actually just took a break and had some time away. And I think that it's very hard to gain perspective when you're in something and just thinking about taking a photograph. So you need to move back in order to take a picture of the whole scene. And so when you take some time away, you get to really think about what it's doing to you. You could probably feel like you're feeling more rested and you're able to eat or have time or focus on other things. 
what I also hear in your story is this lack of compassion. And where was that? Right here was this group that you had devoted so much time to. And actually, you know, it was put on your shoulders to just fill in when he was missing. It's a lot of pressure. And still, I think when you really needed a mentor, I think to say, you do what you need to do, that's not going to happen. There was none of that. Okay. There was none of that. And I look back and it was like, well, like that was never modeled to given to anybody ever. Baron tells stories about, you know, you leave your, your stuff at the door when you walk in. Mm-hmm. And it's not about you. It's about the students and their experience. And there's so much of that, that it's like, oh, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. You know, right. like, this is how I've been trained. I've been trained to like, to always show up and show up as your fullest self, no matter what's going on and show up as great. Like you get great by making others great is a very coined term within, you know, Baptist yoga. I mean, I have pages and pages that I've written down to that mm-hmm. so much problematic stuff and, and free labor that happens. And so when you assist, you pay to go and basically volunteer for the week and you work pro- like the week long programs. The days are less than they were in early days, mm-hmm. but you're up at 5.30 or 6 because you have to be on for the participants and you're asleep two hours later than them. And that's if you're lucky. Like if you're in center core team and working with Baron, it's even longer days and you're given, yeah, you're given the same food breaks as the participants, but you don't have time off mm-hmm. at all. And it's mostly all for free. Plus then like he used me like, oh, Rachel, like love bombing. And then can you go write, like, remember that, that thing? Can you go write that? Like, you're really good at that. Can you write this content for me? I know you have it from that other style. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, oh, me? Yeah. Okay. You know, like, and he, I said, he, it, that was not just me. This is not just a me thing. It was many people, many people who were before me and after me, you know, asked to write this content and lead it. And here you are working for free and then leading things for free to hundreds of people for 10 days because you have to come two days before program starts. So the free label labor, and this is, I think this is rampant throughout the whole yoga community, but it's very much so within Baptiste is, you know, having people just come and work for free while he's making millions of dollars per program. And then having some of those people go not only above and beyond, but like actually do the work he's doing for, you know, or doing his work when he's not showing up and not being paid for it at all. I would even say about that. There've been, you know, when I was in charge of certification, we'd spend weeks and weeks on content for something. And then we'd meet the night before and he'd scrap it and have a random idea that he would throw out there. And then it was on my back and someone else's to go try to figure out and create what he wanted while he slept and we stayed up all night. That was a frequent thing where it's like, there's been a plan and then the plan is thrown out the window. It, it felt like a game that happened so much. There's a plan, it's thrown out the window. Here's this new content idea. Now you go create it, I'll sleep. And you'll get in trouble for it not being perfect in the morning. 
the way that it was styled too had to be perfect. It's like, no, 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 no. It has to be this way on these sheets and all this. It's like, we had months. We had months to plan this. We did plan it. We Mm -hmm. put blood, sweat, and tears into it. And then, Mm -hmm. I mean, this happened every single time. And then it was on someone else's back. Like if the content didn't work that he switched up at the end, it was definitely, he did not own that. Like Mm -hmm. if those things threw someone off, it was just like, they're not a good fit. But if someone, like for me example, I could handle all of that. I was, I was like, okay, yeah, like, I'm so adaptable, like, yeah, okay, Mm -hmm. like, I can do that, I can, and so, like, I could handle all of that, and then if you couldn't, you're not a good fit, you're not in the in crowd, you can't lead anything, you're not coachable, you're not a good facilitator, because you need to be able to handle the whims of Baron and the all-overness and all of that. Yeah, that's true, it's like, the qualifications for moving up like to be a more senior teacher is not like, oh, you're, you have good yoga knowledge or your experience or you're clear in your teaching and you're none of that mattered. Literally none of it. It's if you could take being berated and still get shit done. And if you could just say yes to everything and, and be willing to not sleep or um, have the flu and still show up. Um, so those people, and that's how we all got, you know, to where we are. Cause like, yeah. like Shelly, like you were saying, it's like, well, the other people get weeded out. Like they can't handle it. What I want to point out is I get asked a lot. And I, even my husband in the middle of, you know, I've, I've been gone for four plus years now, but like, why are you still doing this? They keep telling me I'm going to get to, you know, lead a level one one day. The carrot. The Mm -hmm. carrots were dangled consistently. Like, oh, you're Rachel, you're next. You're, you're going to be like the one other person that gets to lead programs. They knew what each of our carrots were. That's Mm -hmm. what you get. That's what you're going to get to do. I promise. Like so soon and Baron loves you and all of this. And so always carrots being dangled for everybody. Like, I know that wasn't just me. It was like, you know, Shelly, you get to lead programs. Oh, Melissa, you too. And like so many other people, all the carrots dangled. And then once you start to start to like even lead the short, quote unquote, short programs that Baron never created, by the way. And I started leading those. And to be honest, like the first few I led, it, I made good money because it was a percentage. Mm. And then they decided to change it to a flat rate. And then they upped the price of the program. You go from making, you know, like a decent, like, oh yeah, I'm going to make like four or $5,000 if this program sells out. That's awesome. Like every, what I have done has now mm-hmm. paid, like this finally off for me, mm-hmm. finally, 10, 15 years <laughs> later maybe it won't pay off when you actually do the math (laughs) um to oh well now your flat rate is a thousand dollars mind you this short program at this at the studios they lead they're leading these at is four hundred dollars and it's 50 to 75 people and the studio doesn't make money off of this either 
And the thing with leading those short programs too, like I started doing it and that was my goal. I didn't Mm -hmm. want to lead a a level two. I wanted to lead those short programs. And then I started doing Mm -hmm. it and it really got clear to me what a cutthroat community, the Baptiste yoga community was because something I'm, I am good at, I am an enroller, so to speak, right? Like I'm good at, I was like, yeah, I want reviews. I want reviews on this program. And I would get, you know, 30, I get 50% of people to write reviews. And the one, the people who would write the really like scathing, awful reviews and call the CEO and report on the things you did bad were supposed to be your friends. There are other leaders in the community. Mm-hmm. Like there's not, I mean, some of us there are, like I would say, like Rachel and Melissa and myself, like there, there are some people who definitely have the energy of lifting each other up, but mostly. No, especially if you see someone right here who is where you want to be, mm-hmm. the goal is to take them down and you know exactly how to do that. It's to, it's to tattle. It's a community of tattling. And I, I did mm-hmm. it for like six months and then it was like, yeah, no, I can't do this anymore. It sucks. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, when that happens, it's interesting. You talk about tattling and the clicks. Most groups that are unhealthy have a culture of gossip. And of sharing information to knock other people down and that you get praise for it. And you know that it has a certain currency. And so you're going to use it. And sometimes people feel very embarrassed later on thinking they participated in that kind of currency. It's hard to actually stay removed from it um, because it's all too easy to kind of catch information and share it in a strategic way, because you've learned that that's how you get ahead. And it's so kind of regressive and you feel like you're back in, I don't know, middle school and it's just not okay. So just as we're kind of coming to a close, Rachel, I just wanted to check in with you. Was there anything else particularly about your story that you wanted to share? The main thing I want to say is like, I actually left the company on a, like, like I didn't burn bridges. Like I mm-hmm. called Baron himself and I'm not, I was not disgruntled at the time. I was just like, mm-hmm. I need a break. I want to be with my son and I'm not disgruntled now. And I'm not trying to cancel anybody. Mm. I want people to understand that this is a problem in the yoga world and in the self-help world, that there is manipulation and coercion and really trauma-inducing practices that are done by people who do not have the training or the capacity and shouldn't be doing them. And I, I would like to see change. And I would like, I don't know if accountability will ever happen, but I just want people to know that like none of us are disgruntled or want any canceling. We want people, I want people to not feel alone and to know the signs and the mm-hmm. correct people to look for. There's, mm-hmm. It's not the whole yoga industry. It's not the whole self-help industry. There are good people and good things out there. And I think it's important to know the difference and to yes. look for the red flags and mm-hmm. to look for the good things. And when something feels off, to trust that. And if you're not allowed to ask about it or about things that don't seem right, that's a red flag and to leave. Mm-hmm. And I wish I had, I wish someone had said that to me in my twenties when I started all of this, I was young and I'm glad that there's more of this happening, not just with us and Baptiste, but throughout many, many things like this so that 
people can really start to discern for themselves. It helps also when you're talking in that way, in that light, it helps you come across the way you are, which is very reasonable. And it's not that you're trying to destroy something. You're just trying to inform and you want people to have a good experience. You don't want people to have to avoid and to not ever go into any kind of self-help or yoga, but to do it safely and know what to watch out for. And you're right. If something feels uncomfortable, very often people dismiss that and they think that they need to put that feeling away or they believe the message that there's something wrong with them, that it's bothering them. And to not do that, to really sit with your, let, let yourself talk to yourself and really listen. And so I wonder if each of you can just finish up with maybe something that you wanted to make sure to let people know can happen in a space like this or other spaces like this. What I want people to know, specifically people who have had a similar path within Baptist yoga or any other yoga lineage is that um, you still have an identity. <laughs> you still mm -hmm. have yoga, Baptist yoga or any other yoga that you've been a part of. Yoga is still there. That was a big part of my journey when I realized, uh-oh, <laughs> is to go back and read yogic texts and to shift my practice to, okay, what is, like, where is the line between yoga and Baptiste yoga and focus on yoga? You have not wasted all your time, money, effort, energy, community on Baptiste. There is a way to separate the two. It may take a little bit of time. You may continue to teach. You may not. Yeah. That's what I want people to know because I know that like myself, people have fear of like, okay, well, if I admit that this is true, what does that mean for me? What does that make me? But there's you're still a yoga teacher. You still love yoga. There's still yoga. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, just taking a little bit of time to put away the books that you've been told to read and the methodology you've been told to memorize and, and go back to the actual source, not what we've been told is the source. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and one would hope too, along the way, being able to have a text that, or, or something, or just the intuition or the permission to uphold your boundaries mm -hmm. and to not feel like if you're in a space, you need to tolerate something that you shouldn't because that should never be a part of yoga or really any tradition. Okay. So thank you for that. And Melissa, you know, there's so much more that hasn't been unpacked uh, in this conversation yet, but the coercion, I personally have witnessed it happen with Baron and his influence over women and using the his status and power to then have relationships with women of all, all types of relationships, many relationships. And anybody who's been near nearby him in any way or not so nearby has seen it. Many, 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 many of us have seen something. I know personally people who have been in relationships with him and don't don't want to speak out because they feel that they have um, they are adults and they consented to it. But what what I'm learning is that 
we didn't consent to much in that state. We didn't consent to buying in, you know, in, in that state. And then especially holding him as this kind of powerful superior. And then does a woman really have consent, independent consent at that point where it's in an unbalanced power situation where he's really held up as a guru to many people. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if that's going to come out, but it's been there for many years. This has been happening. A lot of people brush it off as like, oh, he's a guy. Oh, he's a single guy. Oh, you know, just kind of guys will be guys kind of thing. But Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. it's not consensual. In my opinion, it's not consensual when there's that much of an imbalance of power. If people understood that, they wouldn't blame themselves. I think I I hear a lot of women who just want to put it behind them and not say anything because, you know, just like if for any of us who have ever, you know, had a one night stand or something where we're just like not proud of that whatever, they just want to move on. But in this case, I think somebody who is not held accountable in a public way is free to continue. And also with the people around him, enabling that to continue by turning a blind eye and explaining it away. Mm -hmm. We're essentially contributing to people being taken advantage of women, most many young women, mostly young women. Let's be Mm -hmm. honest. You know, he's a, he's in his late fifties now, people, young women, you know? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and not that there's anything wrong with that in itself, but it's in that environment where everybody's vulnerable. I'm glad you brought it up because right. It might not be illegal, but it has an impact that can be so negative and so toxic and it adds in uh, jealousies and the need for attention. And sometimes after women have relationships with teachers, this is why teachers should never be sleeping with their students. Um, Sometimes they just leave and you don't know why and something awful may have happened or not, but it just leaves this sort of mystery and a distraction and you are kind of wondering and I think your intention of coming to a place like this is to have something that kind of helps you to have clarity and kind of purity. And there's this messiness and kind of ugliness and very base behavior that's happening from behind the scenes and not so behind the scenes if kind of everyone sees it. But it's a really unfair advantage that any teacher has where people will do things that they might not do with other people because they feel like they need to please this person or they feel indebted because this person has given something to them. It's never an equal playing field. So I'm glad you brought that up. Absolutely. And it's also, he's leading by example too. And I know definitively of two other male yoga studio, Baptiste yoga studio owners who have also perpetrated straight out sexual abuse and they essentially get permission you know unspoken permission by the leader doing that and not being held accountable um and these women have been silenced um fired from their teaching jobs told they can never teach at the studio again 
telling that they're a disgruntled employee, that they, that they consented again, that they're an adult. Thank you. Right. It's this like same trope, but in so many different. All right. And so then, Rachel, one last thing that you want to let us know that really sort of left you with kind of this motivation to want to talk about what's happened there. I mean, I think I kind of said it before, but, and Melissa said it at the very beginning, like, if you see something, say something. And I just want to stand up for what's right. And I want to be a voice for, as Melissa just mentioned, and other people who have maybe had less or more which doesn't really matter, but have experienced any kind of trauma from a group like this and are still too afraid or too traumatized to speak up that like I can be a voice for them and that if they ever have the courage to do so, and this is to like anyone from Baptiste, if you ever have the courage or you, and you know me and you just want to speak to me, And that's as far as you take your story, like, that's what I'm here for. And I'm like, really want to know that people to know that healing is also possible. Mm -hmm. Um, I still feel like I'm still healing from some of it, but Mm -hmm. that and learning and unwinding a lot still, because as you know, Rachel, like when you leave a group, a lot of times you go to another group. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) I did that. Um, <laughs> I did that. recognize things quickly, got out. <laughs> so, um, it's scary at first and it's okay. And you can get your life back. Your family and your friends will also be so happy to have you back and not have you on phone calls, speaking some weird jargon all the time and trying to right. get them to be a yes and give up what you must and you'll get your weekends back and you'll get your life back and it's amazing out here out here out in the world it's out so good world. and i think also just ending on a practical note for people listening there you know there is this idea of hands on assist and touch assist oh, yeah. and and being consensual or non consensual there's a lot there are a lot of new ways that people can signify whether they want to be touched. I've seen discs that people can put on their mat. And just so can you let people know what they don't have to accept uh, within a yoga class in terms of being touched and how it's not necessarily necessary, even if it's presented that way? I think um, in Baptiste yoga in particular, we were so ingrained to think that it was a gift. Like if you didn't touch someone, you were, you were robbing them of this gift. And what I now know that I didn't realize before is that any touch must be consensual. And I think it's more so the Baptiste teacher who I, I continue to see people posting photos of outright some Matthew Remsky calls it somatic dominance as a yoga teacher, we already have this kind of power dynamic that's uneven. And then for us to assume that they want our touch and that we somehow can know that and somehow can deliver it in a way that it is appropriate and that's not going to re-traumatize or injure or something, someone is, it's just insane. 
but mm-hmm. I did believe that too. Mm-hmm. I really did with all my heart. I believe that I'm doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. And it, it just, I just w- would request that teachers in particular, just give that a second look and think about the fact that people are, autonomy is, is really the only thing that you have that is yours and it doesn't belong to anybody else. And that to please take a second look at this whole thing of assisting and climbing on people and laying on them and doing crow pose on their back. And I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> like, mm. you know, now it's like both, it, it's both alarming and ridiculous, but it was so normalized. Glad you brought that up because even if something is normalized and you're desensitized to it, it doesn't mean that it's healthy and that it also doesn't mean that it's necessary. But I love your line about your autonomy doesn't belong to anyone else. It was amazing. So let's end on that because I think that's a really good theme for tonight. And so I want to thank all of you. I know there are hours more conversations that we could have and you needed to kind of narrow this down. And I'm so glad that we had a chance to talk. And I'm so glad that you were able to give a flavor for what your experience was like, and also really highlight that you have a sensitivity about people who are caught up in the system and what they end up doing that then they regret, but they did it with good intention. But still, that's when you know you're in an unhealthy environment, that you're doing things that you would normally not do And in retrospect, feel that they're kind of against how you would run your life or against your conscience. And then you know that it's really, it wasn't an okay environment. And uh, an environment is only going to be as healthy as the leader is. So thank you again. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I mean, this is like part of a healing too, I think for all of us, I really appreciate the conversations we've had and listening to your podcast has been tremendously mind healing for me and heart healing. Thank you. This is, this is an opportunity, I think, for the three of us who've wondered how to be public, wondered how to share, wondered how to support people to actually do that. Thank you so much for sharing your platform with us and allowing us to speak here. Thank you again. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank Thank you. One more thing before you go. I want to thank these wonderfully strong women who were so open about their story. I know there is always more to a story and there's much more that they share. So check out their podcast. And I'm so glad you got to hear at least part of what they experienced on this show and also last week. And if you haven't heard the first part of my conversation with them, please check it out. One of the things that they mentioned was about this idea that they would receive and I think sometimes need to give these hands-on assists. And it's an interesting thing with hands-on assists. And this is this idea that when someone sees you going into a certain yoga pose, and that would certainly be me because I'm really not great at yoga. And so I often need a lot of help the few times that I've tried it. But there are people who will come over and just manipulate your body and move your arm and your torso and your 
tush and wherever, whatever they need to move to whatever place they think it needs to be moved to. And there are some people who will say that the person in charge came over and was really kind of leaning against them, leaning their whole body against them. And it was way too close, way too uncomfortable, just kind of alarmingly, weirdly intimate. And it felt like a violation. And truth is that it is that when you are dealing with being in a situation where you're needing to move your body in a certain way, no matter the situation, I mean, unless you're injured and unless someone has to rush up to you to help you and unless they help you right away, you're going to be in very bad shape. Like if they need to bandage a wound in other kinds of situations, I think you really always need to ask for and expect consent. So someone also who just, you know, kind of without even thinking is so used to doing these assists, will just move someone's arm and move someone, someone's neck and the placement of their foot. But when it comes to parts within your torso, especially, you want to be asked, can I move you here? Or you want to expect also that the other person is going to be able to follow what you're saying if you say, would you like me to describe to you what you need to do here that's different and how you need to move this part differently? Or would you like me to show you with the way I'm doing it? There are so many other ways to teach people without just manipulating their body. I know it used to happen to me a lot. I don't know if it happens as much to boys as it does to girls, but I remember feeling hands on my waist and someone pushing me to the right or pulling me to the left to have me get out of their way. And it could be an adult. It could be an adult, male, female, whomever, but they were moving my body and I, I got used to it. And sometimes their hand would be a little higher than my waist. I don't think it was meant to be sexual, but it just sort of catches you in certain places and you go, that is really uncomfortable. And the truth is, as I got to be older, when people would do that, I would say, you can actually just say the words, excuse me or pardon me, or you can move over instead of moving my body over. There's something very different about that because within certain situations, again, Sometimes it's innocent, sometimes it's not. The end result sometimes can feel just as violating. I also remember one time, and this is a message for people who are in healthcare. When I was pregnant, there was some issue with the fetus that would have been an issue had the fetus been a male versus a female, and I didn't want to know the sex of the child. But I'm in the hospital, and they're doing an ultrasound, and I have this sort of goopy stuff on my stomach, and the ultrasound technician is moving this pad around, to, and, the, and the screen is showing what's happening inside, and it turned out to be a teaching hospital. So a doctor comes in with his whole class, and they're looking at this monitor, and all talking, and I'm hearing words like kidneys, and surgery, and lifelong, and pain and all these other words. I don't know what they noticed, but no one told me. And they were examining what was happening in my body. No one even said hello to me. And they all looked at the screen and then they all left. They took notes and then they all left the room. 
And the doctor, though, would only turn around to talk to the technician to say, can you move that over to the left a little bit so that we can get more of a sense of what's happening on this side? Or can you move it up a little higher? So my body was being used as a teaching tool. And they left. And I said to the technician, what was that about? And she said, oh, I'm not at liberty to say. I'm not supposed to talk about what they noticed. If you want to know, you need to call the hospital. What? So turned out, everything turned out to be fine. But either way, how awful. And so there have been actually studies now being done about how important it is to actually talk to a person and say, is it okay if we do this? And is it okay if we use this? And we will also communicate with you. If we're using your body to teach us something or what's happening in your body, we'll also communicate with you. And if there's news to share, we'll share it privately, not in front of a whole class of medical school students. And in that environment, a lot of people get a pass because they think, well, it's good they're learning. Now let's move it back to you're in a yoga studio. Someone comes up to you and moves your body. You're supposed to be fine with it because it's happening all around you. And you're supposed to think that it's part of how this person is helping you. There have been little discs, little chips that have been printed that people can put on their yoga mats that will show that they're giving consent to being touched or if they want to be asked, which is a really good thing. But in some places, they don't offer that as a choice. They don't offer that as a possibility. And so when you feel like here you are being told that you are supposed to become stronger and you are supposed to be this person in a position of power, but in fact, your autonomy is being taken away right in front of you. It's another one of these situations. You want to notice the conflict. You want to notice the irony. You want to notice what's not coming together. And for people in those environments too, as I often will tell people, if they're uncomfortable with how they're being treated, they will know if it's a healthy environment when they voice their discomfort with what just happened and see how that's responded to. Because it's good to give someone a second chance and think they're just, mm, without thinking, doing something to you. And there's no negative or nefarious intent or sexual intent. And if you say, you know what, next time, would you mind just describing it with words, what I need to do? Or can you show me by doing it yourself? Or can you ask me? If they get mad in any of those things, then you know again that in that moment, it matters less that you're doing it right than it matters that they get to do whatever they want. Always watch out for that. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.